Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm Sarah Koshansky from 11FS, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Frederick Enze, founder and CEO of Oakham, a fintech lender tackling financial exclusion. Thank you for joining us, Frederick. Thank you for having me on the show. So first off, can you give me a quick introduction to the business? So what does Oakham do and what problem are you aiming to solve? So we are a digital micro lender, and the problem we're solving is one of providing access to credit to people who have a limited credit footprint. And so we do that by leveraging alternative data and by using behavior science to nudge our customers into better financial habits that lead them to have access to cheaper product, larger line of credit, etc. So how do you, is that what makes you unique? Is it those different data sources or is it the behavioral science or is it a combination of all those factors that makes you different from other lenders? So the uniqueness, if, you know, first thing is if I compare us to the dominant player in our market, the uniqueness is definitely tech. So and tech will be the usage of data and the usage of smartphone as a way to distribute. So for most of us who are in mainstream financial, we probably have very limited ideas of how people who are on low income or how migrants are getting access to credit in places like the UK, but also in Uganda, in Nigeria, in Mexico, etc. So in the UK, surprisingly, and I'll come back to the story of how we found it, but the dominant player in our market is a doorstep lender. A few years ago, they had 11,000 agents knocking on people's door, giving cash and collecting cash every week. Yeah. And that has been a very successful model for the last 135 years. So the number one in the market exists for 135 years in a very human-intensive model. So our first uniqueness is we've attacked a market that was superhuman-intensive with technology. If we compare ourselves to mainstream lenders, so you know, against the you know, credit card of this world, the uniqueness is we're breaking away from the um, dominant model, you know, that has existed in credit card and personal loan for the last 40, or even more than that, I would say almost 50, 60 years, which is what I call the Experian Fair Isaac model. So that model is one where you have to be in the system to be in the system. So you start by, you know, using a credit card when you're a student and then you have your first footprint and that generates your, your scorecard, you know, Fair Isaac invented that. And then it goes into a credit bureau and the loop gets fed as you progress in life. If you fall off, you become subprime. The issue with this is like, you know, it doesn't deal very well with people who are new to country at a later stage. So if you decide to move to the UK at age 35, you have no register on experience. So you're blank, you're what we call a thin file. Or if you're low income and you have to face products that are not designed for you. So if you're earning less than a thousand pound a month in the UK and you only want to borrow 200, 300 pound, there's very few suppliers out there who provide short-term loan of that nature. So as a result, you know, we see a lot of customers who ended up being not unbanked, but underbanked. So the big difference there is the dominant model has been this, you have to be in a system to be in a system. We have used psychometrics mm -hmm. to get people in the system without having a footprint. Then I think probably the last piece that makes us very different is how we got about resolving this problem by having a mix of retail and smartphones. So we had to start by having retail outlet to enable us to understand how our main competitors was working and to generate and structure data and understanding how we were doing the psychometrics. And we have moved gradually to 
app-based lending. So when you say retail, do you mean you have shop fronts? We have a few shop fronts in the UK, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Well, when talking, you touched on a little bit there, but, you know, how do you, is that how you acquire customers? People see, you know, originally is that how you acquired customers? They see your shop front, they go in and say, oh, I wonder who years that ago, is. Years ago, it was the case, you know, the majority of our recruitment, but a few years ago, we were recruiting something like 40, 50% of our new customers through shop front. Mm-hmm. Today, it's less than 4%. It's mostly mostly online, yeah, and it's a mix of, so how do we generate application is TV advert, word of mouth in the community, so refer a friend, and then some, you know, social media. So that's the majority. Storefront is now very little. Brilliant. Are you just in the UK? Have you got a global presence? No, we are just in the UK, but I'll come back to that in terms of, you know, (laughs) we set up the business from the origin to attack a global problem. So our intention and our strategy is to now leverage the platform in markets where and the bank and end bank are a much larger portion of the population. So it sounds like your focus, maybe the business is focused, but perhaps also your personal focus is on serving these underbanked customers. You know, that's why is that so important to you? What made you decide to focus on that particular market, if you like? I think probably a, a mix of personal story and professional experience. So I am uh, born in Congo. I grew up in Central Africa. And I was uh, when I was studying, I had one pole. So my passion was mathematics and pure math. And uh, I got into that well quite heavily. And I realized that I was, it was a complete disconnect to, you know, the problem that I was, you know, most people were facing in the country I grew up. So I, w- I got an interest in development economics and the whole issue around how financial access had impact on growth of SME and et cetera. So that, you know, there was a personal interest around how do I find something that enables me to have a reconnection with a, my home country, yeah? And then I think there was a series of accidents on the way in my career where, you know, I've worked with a company called General Electric, the GE Capital, was the financial arm of General Electric in the U.S. And I worked for the non-domestic arm. In, uh, so we were based in the U.S., but we were acquiring businesses in emerging market. And following some American business like Walmart, when Walmart was going to Brazil, we were setting up consumer finance in Brazil. And I found myself, you know, in the late 90s, trying to see how we could finance people who were coming to a Walmart store who wanted to buy a satellite dish or, a, you know, a TV, etc. But for which we could improve the address because they were living in a shantytown. So I started to get an interest in around how do you deal with people that have no KYC? You know, here we... UK is interesting because most people don't have an ID card. But if you, you know, grew up in France or in, in Sweden, you know, you have some countries have more than an ID card. You have a unique number that follows you everywhere. You tax register, everything goes through a credit bureau. So but between proving who you are, where you live, how much you earn, things that are relatively easy for most of us to do because we have a payslip every month and we have a bank account on which we can see all the transaction, these issues were primal for the, the customers I was facing, you know, in Brazil and in a few places in Southeast Asia, where we had people that we could see had capacity to repay, but they were in the cash economy, in the informal economy, and they had no documentation. So we had to reinvent the whole model of underwriting. And then the third accident was coming to the UK, and I was working for Barclays. I was leading the consumer finance business here. And we had one and a half million customers of Barclays Bank who were on what was called a universal banking. So they had a limited bank account, but they had no overdraft, no card, nothing. And when we digged into these accounts, we found that a lot of them were migrants or low income. They were just getting the benefit, taking everything in cash and leaving the bank. And if you follow these customers outside, you realize they were using financial services in many other ways, let's say remittances, et cetera, with very, very thin, thick margin. 
And that raised a challenge for me around like why was Barclays not interested in serving these customers? And it was the, the noise back from the bank, from the, the branches where they're harder, they speak different languages, they come in the branches with kids, they spend a lot of our time, and we, can't, we cannot sell them an ISA, a mortgage, etc. So that was the last incident where I thought, hmm, there's something I need to do there. And I jumped out and decided to create something that was closer to my heart and gave me a route back into you know, the geography that I have a particular interest for sub-Saharan Africa. So, I mean, it sounds like the, the problem that you're solving and the service that you're providing is um, is very much needed. But as you said, the people that you are serving are not particularly well off in most cases. So how do you make sure that the business is making money? What, you know, what's your business model? Because it's, it's all very nice having a product that helps people in need, but you need to run a yeah, successful no, business so, as well. That's a very good question because, you know, we always get the question around like, oh, are you, you know, you talked about financial inclusion or financial exclusion. We We don't see ourselves as, you know, financial inclusion business in a sense that when you look at that sector, uh, majority of uh, institutions that are looking at financial inclusion look at it from a, either a social enterprise or a development institution or a charity angle. And they're thinking, oh, let's bring these consumers in the modern economy. You know, Most of customers or consumers that I see in Uganda or in Congo you know, are not financially excluded, but they're just not on the bank. So there's a difference between, you know, can they transact? Yes, they transact. And can they borrow? They have a lot of very creative solution around informal borrowing. Actually, the financial service in a lot of the places in South Sub-Saharan Africa is thriving and super creative, but it's not done formally. And as a result of it, it doesn't lead to any digital footprint. So there's no transaction. It's done through community, trust, knowing people around. And you have the same type of solutions done in, you know, here in London, you know, when we deal with some of our customers, I'll give you three very interesting examples. You and I would never use our bank account to do transactions for our friends or someone from our family. Yeah. Some of our customers, when we doing, you know, I was reviewing our approach to affordability check and I was sitting with a customer panel. So we get all the bank statement on the table to say, okay, let's look at that. And they're saying, oh, but you can't assess my affordability by looking at this because this is not my transaction. But what do you mean? It's your bank account. Oh, that is my friend. She hasn't got, a, you know, a good credit history. So I applied to this catalog business for her. <laughs> yeah. And then they collect for me and she pays me cash every week. Yeah. You know, we would not do that. They do that every day and it's in London. Other customers we saw in focus group, for example, the Somali community in, in Hackney, not far from here, you know, they do saving completely in cash. So I've, I've visited some council estate where you have a big Somali community and you see there's one person, you know, middle-aged man who's very known in the community and, you know, has good reputation with the local mosque who's going around every week and every time people get their salary, he collects, you know, no transaction record. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the only one who know how much you saved. The day you have a wedding coming or you have a funeral coming, he will come and lend to you without asking any question. Again, with no record and no contract signed. There's very little default because if you default from a system, you're completely excluded from the community. Yeah. That happens here in London. Is it illegal? I'm sure it is. You cannot do financial service without a, a license. It's definitely informal, but it's the way people have found a way to, you know, solution something they cannot access elsewhere. So when we, we think of financial inclusion, we think of it as a commercial problem, which is more about how you get distribution mm -hmm. to people that are currently outside, but in a way that has a positive impact. If our product becomes more expensive than the informal solution they have, there's no point. They're not going to use it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But uh, it's very easy when you look at the poverty premium that people are paying here in the UK. It's very easy to actually offer a product that is much cheaper than what the banks are offering. Mm -hmm. And for some community where you haven't got this support network, so you have community like some of the Eastern European work we see in London, they're not as comfortable borrowing from their community. They want something a little bit more formal, but also because they have the intention to settle in the UK. You know, they tell us that 
I'm starting with you because tomorrow I want to be able to borrow to bring my family from Poland. And after that, I, you know, in five years, I want to be able to take a mortgage. So for them, they see it as important to establish credit. To have a formal record yeah, of, so they of want paying a formal back. record because yep. they know that the name of the game here is you need to be in the system to use the system. Yeah, So they use this as an entry into it. And so... Our business model is for, we have two types of uh, customers we serve. One is thin file migrant who are on an upward trajectory. They come to the UK, they start with low income, you know, with most of the time income that is paid weekly and certain income. So they don't know how much they're going to earn in two weeks. And uh, they live in a flat with five other, you know, adults. So they have, they have an issue with their documentation. And we use technology and data to prove who they are, where they live, and how to assess their risk. Yeah. The second part of our business model is to serve low income. So we started by, you know, bottom to decile of uh, the income in the UK. So you have, there is much more, where the migrants are much more male. This one is much more female. So you have a lot of fragmented family, single parent family. The income here is more certain. So you have more benefit. Yeah. Their issue is they only want to borrow 200 or 300. They want to borrow it short time and they have a regular emergency that they cannot fulfill because they haven't got access to overdraft. They haven't got access to credit card or when they have access to product like that, they, they are complaining about the fact that if you pay one day late, you have large penalty fees. Yeah. So these are the two segments we serve. The, you know, we make, you know, if you ask how we make money, we make money, you know, purely on interest charges. You know, we don't do late fees. So it's a big difference in our market, in, in towards the rest of the market. The big difference in our cost base is because we're using smartphone as a distribution and service channel. We have significantly low cost to serve than the dominant player in the sector. So as a result, we're the only one in this market to offer dynamic pricing. So at the more you deal with us, the cheaper the product becomes, where the doorstep model is like you can be with a lender for 20 years, you'll have the same price you had from day one. So actually, the more they use your products, the more credit history you have on them and the lower the rates you can offer because you know they're a lower risk, for example. And so it sounds like you sit between that pricing of the banks who may or may not actually want to serve a customer and those doorstep lenders who, as far as I understand it, charge incredibly high interest rates that can be problematic. It was interesting a few years ago, you know, because that, that area is very regulated. Yeah. Uh, so the FCA started by regulating the high cost short term credit sector and they're now looking at the doorstep and the rent to own. Yeah. So these are the two sectors that now under scrutiny. Our sector has, we have a rate cap. The government has recognized that when there was a few years ago, a lot of challenges around the whole payday loan sector, yes. you know, the government looked at it and say, well, how come you're paying these charges? And they realized that, and this is what I admire about the FCA compared to some of the regulators in, in the rest of Europe, is they looked at it and say, hmm, yes, there's an interesting problem here, but it's not a level playing field. Number one, you know, banks don't advertise their APR on overdraft. You know, actually, there's a lot of overdraft that are, you know, close to the 10,000% if you look at APR for borrowing for a few days. Yeah. So, you know, there was a place for payday loan to replace overdraft. And that's one market. And then they looked at the rent to own, the catalog and the uh, doorstep and say, there's a space for small loan. And they commissioned a study by the uh, Joseph Rundree Foundation. I think it was Bristol University. And they say, what would be the cheapest rate that someone could charge for a £200 loan in the UK if you had no cost of capital and if you were non-for-profit? And that rate came around 130%. Mm-hmm. It was showing that to operate small loan where you have a high contact, high collection, because for our customers, every week you need to talk to them, etc. So it's very intensive. So the rate was high in our terms, but our customers don't think APR. They think, you know, what is fee? 
you know, how much do I pay? If I borrow 100, you know, over six months, how much do I pay back? Yeah. And what flexibility do I get? So we price ourselves slightly below the, the doorstep lender for the first loan. But by the time you get to a third loan with us, you can be like 75% cheaper than the doorstep lender. So the big difference is like at the entrance, because we take more risk than they do. You know, doorstep lender have, as I mentioned earlier, a long history and they go and underwrite people at home. We do it from you know, remotely on digital. So we take more risk than they do. So we've decided to price ourselves just around the same pricing point that they have. So just slightly under, and we are naturally under the rate cap. But where we have a big difference is we aggressively drive it down. So by the time you've, you know, you've been with us for 12 months, you could be 75% lower if you use the app in the right way and if you react well to the nudges we have. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. So um, can we talk a little bit more about, you know, those nudges and maybe the alternative data sources you're using to create those risk profiles? Because as you said, you don't know them, you don't visit them, you can't confirm that person is at that house. What data sources are you using? So that was the, the biggest bet we took. So I mentioned earlier, we started with retail, and then we move into digital fully. What we noticed when we looked at the interview that our underwriters were taking with a consumer, so someone walked into our store, what we found when we were asking our staff how did you decide to lend to this person and not lend to this person? And they were telling us, oh, first thing is like, we had an appointment at 10 o'clock. This person was here quarter to 10. They came with the two kids and I could see the way they were, you know, they were shopping at little, you know, and their iPhone was like three versions behind the most recent. And they bought it as a, you know, as a second hand. So they were picking ideas around like, is this person thrifty? Or they see someone else and say, you're on benefit, but how come you have like a branded bag, or how come you have the latest iPhone? So we're saying, okay, so these are the, you have an interview, but actually you're picking notice to all these different cues. So we engage a conversation with City University, the psychology and psychometrics department, and say, can you interview our underwriters and then get an idea of what are the character they're trying to assess, unconsciously or whatever it is? Because we were capturing all their commentary, and we had a lot of very rich but unstructured data. They were saying, I've, you know, at the end of your decision, you had to explain why you're giving that person 500 or 200. So we have plenty of text we were mining, but that text mining was very challenging. So we said, let's go and try to see, instead of interview, can you replace it by a series of questions? Because we have people with multiple languages, we didn't want the questions to be verbal questions. We turned them into picture questions. So we tell people... When you're extremely stressed, what do you turn to? What do you do? And we show pictures of someone, you know, playing rugby or someone going to the pub or someone, you know, spending time with their family, etc. And these, so you have four pictures and you pick the one that represents you. So when you're short of cash, what do you do? You know, and we managed to find that around 15 questions we could beat the decision of the underwriters. Amazing. Yeah, that was, you know, so it took us, so it's been, we've signed a three-year deal with uh, City University around, you know, an R&D deal. So we own the IP, we finance some of their uh, PhD students. And so that was the, the shift from text mining 
complex human face-to-face underwriting to completely automated underwriting. So that's been a big shift to our business, enable us to scale aggressively saying, oh, we don't need to open stores anymore. We use the store as the lab to find out how it was working. We said, now stores are now playing a different role. I'll come back to it later, but now we can take the decision on the mobile. I'd like to hear more about how you're using the, the stores these days, but just one quick question on that kind of underwriting methodology, if you like. Did you have to work alongside the FCA to explain that to them? Because it's obviously quite an unusual way of assessing somebody's risk assessment, basically. So we're still working, you know, in terms of, you know, with the FCA to explain. As long as we do what we're doing alongside what the FCA expected us to do, they were fine. Now we're trying to push them and say, by the way, we're doing things that are not adding value. So, for example, we're pulling a credit bureau for every applicant. And that is a cost. If you're borrowing £200, let's say, and then for every, because we're, you know, we're not HSBC, so when we, when we pull a bureau, our contract might be, every bureau costs, I don't know, £1, yeah? If you have to take 10 bureau, 10, 10 bureau to approve two people, it means that you've already spent £5 of the 200 just to check information. So if we found that we have developed something that is completely free for the customer because it's just them responding to 15 questions on a mobile phone, we can save £5 that would have been charged to the customer. Yeah? Interesting. So, okay. well, so what we've started to look at is say, the FCA is saying, oh, you have to be a responsible lender. Mm-hmm. You need to check all this information to make sure the customers are not over in debt and everything. So now we're engaging with the FCA saying, fact-based, we're going to show you that the psychometrics give us better results than checking the bureau. As a result, you know, when do we want to use the bureau as a complement to the psychometrics and when is it just a waste of time? So, for example, for people who are new to the UK, we know we're not going to get anything, so there's no point spending that money. So all our business is about how you use digital and data to save money so you can offer cheaper rates to these customers. So that's one example for the FCA. The other one is around affordability. You know, when we had interaction mostly through stores, it was easy to ask people to say, okay, come and let's just do your full budget. And our customers really enjoyed it. It was like, okay, I'm spending that much on mobile phone and everything. But that's quite lengthy. So in terms of user experience, when we move everything on the mobile, it's saying, how do we now assess affordability by mixing again the the psychometric with like only three questions around how much you can afford. For example, we ask someone, how much do you think you can service your, your debt for every week or every month? If you have on top of that a metric that tells you if this person is structurally overconfident or prudent, Mm -hmm. then you can decide to put a haircut to the number and say, they're telling us they can afford £25, but I know this person has a tendency to be risk-taker, so they might have also gambling habits, you know, or they're over-optimistic, so I'm going to take that £25 and make it 15 so I put a haircut. So that's another part where we now documenting what we're doing to say, you know, FCA, by the way, we have found a better way to do affordability checks. And the FCA is quite open, in my experience, to working with people who can help out underserved customer segments. So they're probably quite interested in the yeah, work they're they, doing. They're very fact-based. So what we found as a regulator, they're very curious for any new experiment of that nature. They, they are listening and uh, they have demonstrated they're very commercial. So we, you know, we are very happy having that regulator. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just to, to go back to it then, um, you mentioned that you'd started out with the retail stores. You, you didn't need them so much anymore because you'd learned from them and you've, and you've moved on to doing mostly digital. What role do those retail stores play today? You still have some, I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah, we yeah. still have. You know, so they've moved very much from the retail stores first were recruitment. They were a brand on a high street, you know, very, you know, high footfall high street we picked up. Then, you know, on top of attracting customers, they were about underwriting. Yeah. So that underwriting piece has now moved here on the smartphone. The attraction has moved online. So now what we found is like the retail store is a place where we do education about how to use the what we call Oakum Grow, the ladder, the gamification piece. So customers now have a loan. 
So when they come to us, there's an emergency. I need 200 pounds, I need 500 pounds. So they get it. Now the next one is like, why would I actually use this app? What does it mean? What can I gain through it? So we found that the stores are the best place to actually show to people you know, that if you, do, you know, if you pay on time, this is what you get. If you, you know, each of the actions, if you watch this video about financial education, if you, watch, you, know, if you do uh, update your data on a regular basis, these are the points you earn. When you get to that first level of points, your price drop by 25% and you can borrow more. When you get to that, you know, the ultimate point is that you can recommend someone from your community. So uh, that's what we use the store for. It's more around education of how to, why would you move completely on an ad base? Because we're talking about customers who, some, so quite a few of them enjoy the hand-holding because they're, they're moving from an environment where it was at the doorstep. So, so, you know, it might be very expensive. It might be sometimes very intrusive. But there's a lot of flexibility of having come in. You can just tell them every week what struggle you have, how much more you need to borrow, etc. So suddenly you're saying, you're not going to talk to someone. You're going to do, do it yourself. It's going to be significantly cheaper, but it's do it yourself. So unless you have a little bit of the operating manual of like, how do I do it? You know, it's, it's a bit daunting for some. So we found like very young customers adopted very quickly. Uh, level of education really help. Uh, we have more and more, uh, sadly, you know, it's just a sign of like how poverty is expanding in the UK. We have more and more senior customers. That's the bigger, you know, we spend a lot of time from the call center and the store educating them just on how to download an app. <laughs> These are the type of things we do now. So sort of that's um, that's a broader education piece, actually. In fact, it's not just financial education; it's te- technological education. And once people know how to use those apps, they can move on. They can use your products, but they can also use other products as well. So it's it's helping them better manage their financial lives, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know that that all sounds brilliant. You know, it sounds like you've made some huge uh, leaps in the time you've you know the time you've been going. What what's next for you? What's your kind of long term goal? Are you you mentioned earlier maybe expansion outside of the yeah, UK? So that's the starting point for us. So the you know strange. Strangely, when I set up this business here in the UK, it was almost like, you know, uh, the story about why you're looking for the piece you've lost just here is because the spotlight is on, is on, uh, on that side of the carpet. Yeah? So it's very much, I wanted to set up something to uh, bring more technology, data, you know, different way of managing financial service to, you know, some country in sub-Saharan Africa. But I had a team here in the UK. It was easier to raise capital here in the UK. There's a whole ecosystem around fintech. There is a regulator that understands what we're trying to do. So actually, it's almost like I ended up creating in the UK for a specific use case, which was we started with a migrant. And very quickly, we said, oh, we do this, you know, and we'll become the expert of how to underwrite people with thin file. And if you think of thin file, you know, here in the UK, it's mostly about migrant and, you know, millennial coming and starting their financial life. But you go to a place like Nigeria, you know, the large majority of people haven't got a credit report. Yeah. So some countries have credit bureaus, but actually because, you know, first is people are unbanked for the majority. And even when they're banked, you know, I don't know if you spend any time in, you know, Nigeria or Uganda. But what you see is like there's a big queue at the end of the month. People get a salary. They throw everything in cash and that's it. So the bank transaction is one transaction you got. One every month. They take it away, spend it. Right. And then you have everybody in the informal sector that actually doesn't touch it. So all of these consumers are completely outside what I call the credit footprint. Interestingly, you know, and there was a report published last week by the World Bank, the Findex report, that was talking about the fact that mobile equipment and smartphone equipment is actually catching up faster than mobile uh, than banking equipment. So you have now more people in Nigeria that have a smartphone and far much more people that have a mobile phone than people that have a bank account. So even though they haven't got a credit report, they have a digital footprint. And that's why you're seeing, for example, in this country that uh, it's more the 
telecom operators that are going faster and attacking financial service, but they're doing it in you know, a way that they're still very cautious. So they do mobile wallet payments and they do very, you know, micro, micro loans. So you see, in, if you look in Kenya and, and uh, Nigeria, Tanzania, the type of loans is like five pounds or five dollars for a few days. Yeah. So what we're looking at is like we're actually in a position where we can do much larger loan because we you know, what we've learned here is actually how do you not just underwrite using alternative data, but how do you enrich it with the nudging system that enable you to follow an SME lender, for example, an SME um, uh, business, yeah, yeah, and then start from loans that could potentially be like in a small $100, but go all the way to a few thousand, 10,000, et cetera. So our ambition is to, uh, we're going to start with, and we, we're designing an MVP for one country in sub-Saharan Africa that will be just about like how do we, uh, create the same type of alternative data that we have here in the UK and how do we calibrate it. So towards the early part of next year, you should see something interesting that we've been working on that will you know, demonstrate you know, how you can gather data that Credit Bureau don't have. Oh, I look forward to hearing more about it. Um, so thank you very much for, for that. That's been really interesting to hear about your business um, and you know how you got started. We do have a couple of other questions that we ask all our interviewees just for the benefit of our listeners who um, are thinking about doing something similar, perhaps, or moving into the fintech space. Um, so the first one is, um, as a CEO, how do you best motivate your team? Maybe I should ask your team. They're also in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think, you know, when you're dealing with a very acute problem that has a big impact on consumer... What we have found and what has, you know, at every time where we had a big crunch in the business, either liquidity crunch or, you know, system glitch and everything, what kept the whole team together is the fact that they could see the impact that our product is having on, on customers. So I think the first big motivation of people joining, you know, uh, Oakham is the fact that they can see uh, that we're resolving a big problem that is not just UK. We have a very diverse you know, team in London. We have, you know, the, our offices on Tottenham Court Road has something close to 20 nationality. And I think that's one of the, the richness of London. Yeah. And everybody can connect and understand what we're talking about because they have the history coming from their home market and they can see what this could you know, do if we were expanding to these other places. So I think the first thing is like you attract people that are self-motivated that love resolve problem. So if you give them a very, very sexy problem you know they're self-motivated so that's one um growth is an exciting you know people love to be in a place where changes happen at pace and i think we have look at the last year you know we've been able to attract you know 300 percent increase in our application volume you know, even the last uh, the last two months have been incredible so in you know march over february we grew by something like 70 percent in one month uh so i think people get excited about just seeing that you know this is now scaling uh, aggressively, and then the, the plan are you know becoming a reality. And the last piece is the ability to you know when you're in an environment where that grows up quite quick, you get much more responsibility, you know, faster than if you were working in a very well established business. So for people, it's more like the fact that they always it's a bit scary. They're always doing the next job before they're fully ready for the next job. So that's you know that's exciting. And um, and what's the best career advice either you've ever been given or you would give to somebody else? Mm, that's a tough one because uh, <laughs> you know I'll take the one that you know I had one manager who had a very very long lasting impact on my career. She was my first manager at both uh, Amex and GE, uh, a lady from Egypt, and she it was, it was more than a situation she put me into. 
virtues and advice. So she was always telling me that, especially at a young age, when you got to a certain level of, you know, if you have a learning curve and you reach 60%, you need to jump to the next job. So she made me always take po- you know, positions that were uncomfortable. And her analogy was like, you know, if the job is that big, you know, and you only have to, you know, you're feeling half of the size of the job, that's a great opportunity. You could, because if you're resilient, you're going to feel the space and that's going to be learning. So I found myself in a situation where I just, you know, sometimes it was much less than 50%. So I was in jobs where I didn't understand what I was doing, but then it makes you very curious if you have the ability to fall back on your feet. So you need to be more cat-like. And um, I think that works. So if you don't like risk, if you don't like being off balance, that is not a great career advice. But if you like that side of it, it is pleasant. Yeah. I, th- I think there's something in, in being that not a lot of people find they're comfortable for long because comfort soon turns into boredom, right? So yeah. um, brilliant. Okay, so thank you so much for your time once again. Um, where can people find out more about you and or Oakham? So do you have a personal Twitter account or is there a website you'd like to give our listeners? Yeah, so I have a, a personal Twitter account at Fred and Zay, F-R-E-D-N-Z-E. And we have one for the company, but also, you know, I invite anybody in London as we have, we're running meetups in our office. You know, we have one on gamification coming soon. We have one on alternative data with an external participant and people in our team. So it's, a, you know, much deeper than just going for, you know, reading the tweets. It's like you can go and come and have a drink with the team, understand the type of problem we're addressing and, we're attending most of the large industry conference. I think you'll be, you know, one in Amsterdam in a few weeks. There are a few others that are, you know, so you can meet there, meet us and meet the team at these different conferences. So where can people find out more about the meetups? They sound really exciting. On your website? On our website. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love us, please do give us a review on iTunes. We love reading them. Get in touch on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube or Instagram. Just search for Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11fs.com. That's all for now. Goodbye.